Welcome back, friends. This is the Reverend Mary Vano, and I want to welcome you today to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where our conversations about life and faith always include Jesus, others, and you. Today, my guest is the Reverend Kira Austin Young, author of the book, Pro-Choice and Christian, Reconciling Faith, Politics, and Justice. The book was published in 2017, but the topic is especially timely right now in June of 2022. Kira is an Episcopal priest currently serving St. Anne's Episcopal Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Kira, thank you for joining us for an important conversation about how our faith intersects with the ongoing dialogue around abortion rights in our country. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I want to start by asking about your book. What inspired you to write Pro-Choice and Christian? It's a little bit of an odd story. I never like set out to write a book about reproductive rights or about abortion, but I was writing for a website called Ministry Matters out of the United Methodist Publishing House and writing like two articles a month. Mm -hmm. And kind of woke up one morning and thought, you know, a lot of people think that the pro-life position is the only kind of faithful Christian position. And I hadn't really seen anyone tie a pro-choice perspective into their Christian faith. And so I ended up writing like a short kind of article, blog post, 500, 800 words for the website. A few months later, was contacted by an editor at Westminster, John Knox, saying like, hey, I saw your article and we've actually been looking for somebody to write a book kind of in this vein. Would you be interested in doing that? And my first reaction was no, not really. (laughs) You know, I'm a parish priest. I'm busy with attending to my flock. And I didn't really have any interest in sort of being like the abortion priest or, you know, having that be kind of like my brand or what I was known for. But that first initial article got enough play that, I mean, it was already kind of out there. So after having coffee and stuff with the editor, I decided to go ahead and kind of put together a proposal. We kind of workshopped that, then it got accepted and I was under contract to write this book. I always have a little bit of imposter syndrome over it. I mean, it was something that I felt passionately about and I had thought a lot about, but I wasn't particularly like active in reproductive rights spaces. It's always felt a little bit like, do I deserve to write this book or be like the voice of this issue in a way? Well, I can imagine that must have felt vulnerable to be asked to write a book on such a difficult topic. And I can relate as a parish priest, we don't want to incite controversy among our parishioners. That's not what we're here to do, but we are here to speak the truth as best we understand it and to represent a faithful perspective. So I think that's kind of brave of you to add a faithful perspective to an important conversation. So why do you think it's so challenging in our culture right now to talk about abortion rights? And not only in our culture, but, you know, it's political, but it's also in our churches. Why is it so hard? As I kind of say in the book, the interesting thing to me about kind of the issue of abortion or the issue of reproductive rights is that it touches on so many things, right? It touches on sex, which we are, you know, not... (laughs) Great at talking about about sex (laughs) (laughs) and relationships and all of these kinds of things. I know it's kind of popular to say right now that like, oh, we've never been more divided as a country. And I mean, we had a literal civil war, so I don't know how, you know, true that is, but 
there is a lot, I think, especially around the abortion issue, a lot of like shorthand that people use that doesn't really accurately represent maybe what they actually think. So people kind of say I'm pro-life or I'm pro-choice, or I think life begins at conception. And it's like, okay, well, tell me like, what does that really mean to you? Like, what does it mean to be pro-life? And a lot of times when you kind of start digging into what people actually think, it's like, they say I'm pro-life. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, I just don't really think that people should have abortions and I would certainly never get an abortion, but like, what about this terrible circumstance? Or have you ever known somebody who got an abortion or had an abortion? And then it starts like, well, maybe it shouldn't be outlawed, but I just don't kind of like it. So there's a real gray area of people might have their moral perspective. Then you get into like, well, okay, should that be legislated or how do those two things inform each other? It's a really complex topic. One of the quotes from your book that I underlined (laughs) says the political realities of our day tell us that being pro-life and pro-choice are incompatible. But as Christians, we should all be pro-life in favor of that abundant life that Jesus came to give us. I appreciated what you wrote there because I think that part of what makes it hard as a Christian to talk about being pro-choice is that we, at least I feel that I am also pro-life in a really broad (laughs) sense. That Jesus came to give us life and to give us life abundant. I see this from a perspective of faith that is about human flourishing, I think goes beyond some of the different ways of framing the argument. But those labels, pro-life and pro-choice, can be difficult to deal with. Now, I do think that to truly understand any issue, we really should take an honest look at it from as many perspectives as possible. Among Christians, it seems to me that Roman Catholics and evangelicals tend to group together on this issue and take an anti-abortion position. Can you tell us about how these people of faith see the issue of abortion? How is their faith informing that anti-abortion position? It isn't just people that say, oh, I'm pro-life. It's also, and this was kind of my development of my perspective was like from the more left or progressive side of like a fetus is just a clump of cells. And as I got older and I had friends and family members who had miscarriages or had lost pregnancies, that didn't quite jive with my experience or their experience of what a fetus was or, you know, what was happening. There was like a life or a potential for life where I don't even, you know, don't quite know how to explain it in a succinct way, but that something important and sacred and holy was happening there. You know, abortion isn't the same thing as like clipping your toenails, as one of my friends says, you know, I mean, there's something important going on there that I think sometimes the reproductive rights side doesn't want to acknowledge because it risks compromising the position and the viewpoint. To your question, the position is that life kind of happens at conception. And of course, fertilization and conception and all of these things are sort of much more complicated than, again, these kind of quick terms. As I kind of lay out in my book, some of the historical ways that these things have been viewed, which I think is really helpful. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but just looking at historically how these things have been conceptualized, perceived before we had things like ultrasounds and all these fancy medical technologies that we have now, which are wonderful and life-saving. 
devastating and great, but that at that moment that there is a life that occurs and happens and then that life really deserves to be protected. And there is particularly from people, I'll say Christians generally, and especially more progressive people who kind of say that they're champions of the vulnerable. Why wouldn't we kind of champion the most vulnerable, which is a newly conceived of child? There's that kind of going on in there. Again, it was always kind of hard before pregnancy tests and ultrasounds and stuff. A lot of times a person wouldn't know that they were pregnant until around the time of what was called quickening or around kind of that 16 week mark, which is actually when kind of Aquinas says that ensoulment happens or like the child then receives, the fetus receives a soul. Again, there's so many questions kind of wrapped up in this issue. Like, what does it mean to be a life, a human being, like worthy of protection? When do I get a soul? (laughs) Is it when an egg and a sperm meet? Is it when a heartbeat develops? Is it when a child is able to survive outside the womb? Like, there's a lot kind of going on in that. Again, historically, it was actually Catholics and kind of more left-leaning folks who had kind of come together to rally against abortion with this thought of like, we need to protect the vulnerable and support women and support families so that they're able to support their families and support their children and provide things like healthcare and schooling and all of the wonderful things that you know, we need for, again, for human flourishing. So that pro-life or anti-abortion position seems to be born out of a sense of the sanctity of human life. Yeah. Um, And I really have a lot of respect for particularly people in the Roman Catholic Church who consider themselves sort of whole life ethicists or whole life, pro whole life, meaning kind of from womb to tomb and really looking at those issues of human flourishing and opposing the death penalty. And, you know, as issues of assisted suicide are coming up, like how to fight against those things as well as abortion. So then there's a quieter voice in the dialogue when that often maybe just is too silent or maybe is overcome by the loudness of the other side of the conversation. But that Christian and pro-choice voice, there are actually many Christians who advocate for protecting abortion rights. How does our faith then inform that perspective? I think people are often surprised to know that most denominations, especially in the mainline historic churches, have positions supporting reproductive rights. I think where they get lost is that they are quite nuanced. Again, we don't live in a world where nuance is valued or makes headlines or (laughs) it gets lost. But a lot of those positions are around Life is complicated and people end up in situations that they never would have imagined being in. And in some of those situations, abortion is the best option out of a whole host of like terrible options. It could be that abortion is the best option. 
I was kind of preparing for this. I was rereading the Episcopal resolution. The emphasis on individual conscience is one that I think is really lacking. Again, even the kind of facts about who has abortions kind of point to this, because if you look at the average person who has an abortion, that person is already a mother. So it's not like the average person who is having an abortion is like against kids or like hates families or something like that. <laughs> it's somebody who is is already probably struggling to provide for and raise one child and just cannot imagine doing that with a second one or has just had a partner leave. Being a human is just so complicated and hard. People end up in situations that they never kind of thought they would be in. And especially in the United States, we don't have a real robust social safety net. So that kind of puts people in really hard positions if they have an unplanned pregnancy and kind of don't know what to do. Oftentimes people interpret pro-choice as like pro-abortion. And I really want to reclaim the like choice aspect of being pro-choice. Like that means like I want somebody who is in a difficult position to be able to make the decision that matches with their values, that respects their limits and their conscience and what they're capable of. And to be able to do that in a way that isn't hindered by the government. I've known a few people since the laws have passed in Texas who have ended up with unplanned pregnancies and have had the means and the ability to travel to another state. Even still, that was like a pretty big imposition on them, let alone for somebody who might not have had kind of the resources that they had. One of the things that I appreciate about the Episcopal Church, the various general convention resolutions that have come out over the decades, is that they're really informed by a pastoral perspective. I'm a parish priest, you are a parish priest, and I'm certain that you know, as I do, that the experiences, the decisions that people make around reproduction are intimate and challenging and sometimes just heartbreaking. So our church both affirms the sanctity of life while also saying that we really need to give room for people to make the difficult decisions they need to make. As you said, life is really messy and complicated. on kind of the left side of this issue find kind of the statement of the Episcopal Church or others like it to not go far enough in favor of protecting abortion and reproductive rights. And there are some ways that I kind of feel that is true, but I do think holding that, not that there's anything intrinsically good about holding a middle, but in this instance, holding the middle between we do believe that life is sacred and important and beautiful and holy and things happen and life doesn't work out as planned. Everyone who's lived long enough has had to make like the best worst decision of their life at some point, you know, where you are caught between a bunch of bad decisions that you don't want to make. And eventually you kind of have to pick one. One of the parts of the resolution, which was most recently, I think, reaffirmed in 1994, A054, in case anybody is like a resolution nerd out there and wants to look it up. It does say that we regard all abortion as having a tragic dimension, which I think a lot of people who are proponents of abortion rights hear as like shaming language around abortion. Mm -hmm. 
I definitely understand that. And also, as I kind of talk about in my book and kind of envisioning a world where like it doesn't have this tragic dimension, I don't think people ever want to get pregnant with the intention of having an abortion. I think that's kind of the tragic dimension part of it. I wrote the book actually before I got divorced, but having been divorced, I kind of have a whole new perspective on it. I was sitting in the courtroom kind of waiting for my divorce to be heard by the judge. And there were all these other couples also getting their divorces. And I just had this really deep sadness that like none of these couples stood in front of the priest or pastor or judge or whoever they stood in front of when they made their wedding vows, hoping that one day they'd be in this courtroom getting divorced. Like that just wasn't part of the plan. But life doesn't often go according to our plans. And sometimes divorce is the best out of a bunch of bad options. And it does have a tragic dimension, even as there is often life and growth and newness that can happen on the other side. And I think the same is true of abortion. Well, this is the life that Jesus enters into in the incarnation, right? This messy, unjust, complicated, violent life that we all exist within. It can be so broken. And yet in Jesus's incarnation and his walking alongside us and abiding with us, we find our way, maybe stumbling, but we find our way to redemption and holiness. When I think of that word pro-choice, there's part of me that wants to say, you know, God is (laughs) (laughs) pro-choice. We've been given the gift of free will and (laughs) and the grace to stumble and the grace to err and then to find our way back. (laughs) And what a wonderful gift. Like, I love the messiness of human life. It's one of the reasons I'm a pastor and a priest, because I want to accompany people along these kind of awful, messy, hard, and sometimes glorious moments and remind them of the presence of God in that. God gives us free will for a reason, because without free will, if we cannot choose love, then there's no love. And in the same way, if we can't choose to continue a pregnancy, then we're not really choosing parenthood. I'm not pro-abortion, but I do feel like people need the room to make the hard decisions of life. And sometimes we're not going to choose the best thing. We are going to make mistakes sometimes. And there will be consequences that we have to live through. Sometimes we will make the hard choice and it is the right choice. It's our path to life. It's just also hard. I think what's really challenging is I've had some conversations with people who were adopted and a lot of people that I know who were adopted are very pro-life or you know, very against abortion. So you sometimes the challenge is like, well, do you think I shouldn't be here? And I'm like, no, I'm glad that your parent chose adoption for you. Like, I think people should choose. Like it isn't an automatic, you should do X thing. If you're in a situation where you have an unplanned pregnancy, it's a like, I want to help you, especially as a priest and a pastor. If somebody came to me and said, I'm in this situation and be like, let's talk about what the options are and discern and pray about what might be best. good to have the ability to engage those conversations and not others making decisions for us. 
I was also so in kind of doing the research for the book really influenced by a lot of the Black women who are engaging the reproductive rights space from this kind of pro-choice perspective. And for them, it is really about having the choice and the ability and the freedom to have families on their own timing and however many children they want and be able to raise them in safe environments and fighting against things like environmental racism, violence in their communities, and all of these things that affect particularly women of color who are doing works in the reproductive rights space. We need to take into account all kinds of perspectives and that our decisions may be our own decisions, but we often come from a place of privilege that would not allow others not in that same position to make the same choice as us. I do think that our faith informs how we see this issue, how we think about this issue and other issues. I'm a proponent for thinking faithfully about all kinds of things that we encounter in our daily lives, but our faith also should inform how we engage in these issues. At a time now that this is going to be a topic of conversation, how does our Christian faith, Kira, call upon us to participate in dialogue and activism? What do you think faith calls us to do? And how do you think we should do it as Christians? The two important words for me when approaching kind of dialogue about a charged issue are generosity and curiosity. One of the important feedback that I got from a friend of mine about my book was a friend. She just said, you know, your book is really generous towards the kind of pro-life anti-abortion perspective. And I didn't want to kind of make it a character of that position, but to really engage faithful people who hold this view for reasons that I find compelling, frankly, that I think are coming from values that I hold as well. While there is a lot of history around the political mobilization of that in terms of fighting against segregation in the 60s and 70s and kind of how this became a real political issue, most people who are thinking thoughtfully about these kinds of things do have valuable perspectives that even if I disagree with, I can see why people hold them. And that other part of curiosity, again, it's kind of digging beyond the phrases, the words that we kind of just toss off and just a real simple, like, well, what does that mean to you? You know, somebody says, well, I'm pro-choice or I'm pro-life. I think just asking like, what does that mean to you? And not in a challenging way, not in a way that you're trying to prove them wrong. Somebody says, I'm pro-choice. I think we assume that we know what that means to somebody because of the way that the conversation has been framed in our culture, but we might not know, you know, and there might be some, again, I've been really blessed having written this book, even with people who (laughs) who disagree with me to get to hear part of their story about like, well, I'm pro-life because I was adopted as a kid, or, you know, I'm pro-life because of this thing that happened to me, or I'm pro-choice because I had an abortion or, you know, I'm pro-life because I had an abortion or, you know, I mean, there's Mm -hmm. all sorts of wonderful things that we can learn about each other if we kind of get beyond the easy kind of phrases that we toss out in this debate or in this conversation. 
at the same time, I want to acknowledge that like, especially right now for those of us in Southern states and other places that there's a lot of fear around this conversation and what is going to happen with the release of the Supreme Court decision. Uh, You know, I'm in a place right now where we have a so-called trigger law on the books and within 30 days of the release of that Supreme Court decision, pretty much any and all abortion will be illegal in the state of Tennessee. So I'm kind of trying to do some work around what does that mean for me? What does that mean for a person in my congregation who is seeking an abortion and doesn't know who to turn to? Probably the like nearest accessible place is going to be in Illinois in my situation, but like in a lot of other places, that's going to be different. How to kind of do the work around getting together for people to be able to make the choice that is right for them. I love what you said about engaging with generosity and curiosity. And it is in those stories, isn't it, where we really learn from each other. (laughs) And we can't do that if we're too busy sort of mischaracterizing other people's perspectives or seeing it only as a black and white issue. Jesus said, whoever is not against us is for us. (laughs) And I always think that he meant to draw the circle wider and understand that there are all kinds of perspectives and we can inform one another, especially when we're willing to share our stories and to engage with one another, as you said, with generosity and curiosity. And then I think that last thing you were talking about is engaging with compassion, figuring out how we can help people in need, whether that is by listening, helping them know and understand all their options helping them find the resources that they need to make the decisions they need to make. So Kira, thank you. Thank you. My hope is that we'll continue to talk and continue to find our way on this issue because it affects a lot of lives. I hope that we can talk from a faithful perspective that is both loving of one another and respectful of our desire to be faithful servants of God. I think one thing we all agree on is the sanctity of life. And if we're serious about that, then we have to engage each other honestly with generosity and curiosity. That's going to be my new (laughs) go-to phrase. Let's talk with generosity and curiosity. Kira, this is not an easy issue, and it's not one that all Christians or even all Episcopalians see the same way. So I want to thank you for modeling a thoughtful Christian dialogue on an important topic. Thank you for allowing yourself to be challenged by that publisher who said, yeah. why don't you write this book? Oh, goodness, I know. <laughs> Here you go. Here's the bus. <laughs> why don't you get under it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you have engaged this topic faithfully and thoughtfully, and that is a model that we can all follow. So thank you for making my joy complete today in this conversation. Thank you for having me. To our listeners, I commend Kira's book to you for further exploration on this topic. The title is Pro-Choice and Christian, Reconciling Faith, Politics, and Justice. And you're going to find it under Kira's other name, Kira Schlesinger. That's K-I-R-A-S-C-H-L-E-S-I-N-G-E-R, Kira Schlesinger. And you'll find it on Amazon and other retailers. And I do hope that you'll go look for it and read it because we all need to be informed. Engage that with curiosity and generosity. 
Thank you all for listening today. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, send an email to me at mvano at stmargaretschurch.org. And please join us again next time because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Mm-hmm.